This is Dennis Rundy. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg. Our guest today, back on the show, Rabbi Rami, uh, Rami Shapiro, that is. Uh, the rabbi is an ordained rabbi who describes himself as a freelance theologian making my living writing and talking. A boundary crosser, he draws from all the world's spiritual traditions, and his path has gone through Zen and Vedanta Hinduism, in addition to his ancestral Judaism. His latest book, which we want to discuss today, is The Tao of Solomon. Uh, Rabbi, thank you so very much for taking the time to come on with us today. Oh, it's a pleasure to talk with you guys. Rami, we usually begin by asking people about their spiritual history, but since you're a returning guest, uh, people can listen to the uh, beginning of our first one to hear your fuller story. Tell us what, uh, you've written a number of books. Why this one? Why the Tao of Solomon and why that title? Yeah, I have written a lot of books. They're, they're all on the same no matter what the topic is, they're all exploring the same thing. You know, what's reality and how to live it most effectively. And among all the Bible books, you know, I mean, I grew up in an Orthodox Jewish home. I went to rabbinical school. I love the Bible. And I don't believe a word of it. Right? <laughs> the, Bible, the Bible to me is not the word of God. Um, it's just, you know, people wrote things and some of them got to be included in this anthology of human writings. In the anthology, there's stuff that is complete BS, or even worse, stuff that, that really comes from what's called in Judaism, mochin de katnut, narrow mind in English. Huh. And it's, it's the most egoic, fearful, <laughs> defensive, violent, aggressive, misogynist, xenophobic material. And then there's stuff that comes from Mochin the Godlet, which is spacious mind. And that stuff is all, it's not all heart stuff. I mean, a lot of it is, is uh, quite intellectual, but it opens you up. It's, it's, there's no, it, it's what you, I guess you call it non-dual uh, or, or, or I'm sorry, wrong, wrong. Also that, but I was thinking actually non-zero in the sense that it's not us against them. It's not tribal. It's not winners and losers. It's how to live a life that it's really uh, one where everybody wins and I, or everyone loses, depending on how you look <laughs> at it. But among those books is the book of Ecclesiastes. And that's the book that I have written about a couple of times. And the Tao of Solomon is the latest iteration of my, my exploration of Ecclesiastes. So I wrote it because the text itself, the original text, is filled with great wisdom, and most English translations miss the boat uh, regarding that wisdom. And I'll, I'll be happy to tell you why if you want. But yes, and so then, then the name you wanted to know about why yeah, I call it yeah, 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 please, Solomon. yeah, because the book is essentially a Taoist text. It's um, I mean, not, I'm not saying whoever wrote Ecclesiastes, I mean, it wasn't Solomon, but whoever Ecclesiastes was, I'm not saying he was Chinese Taoist, but it, it shares the same wisdom of Lao Tzu, the same notion of, of everything is transient, nothing is, you know, everything goes with everything else. It's all a matter of flow. How do you flow effectively? So that's why I called it the Tao of Solomon. Also, because if I called it the philosophy of Solomon, 
two people would buy it. And if it was a Dow <laughs> column, maybe five people would buy it. <laughs> no. Books with Dow in the title tend to do fairly well. Yeah, that's, I mean, you know, it's all marketing. <laughs> uh, I have a question. I mean, uh, getting back to your origins, uh, my understanding is you grew up in a modern Orthodox home. How did your family take to the direction you took in uh, after your rabbinical studies and and uh, actually becoming sort of uh, uh, very uh, you know what might some might call new age or open minded or uh, 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 trans religious? Uh, uh, was there a a positive or a negative or neutral reaction to that? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll answer that in a second. I don't know if new age and open minded are the same thing. Yeah, right. No, no. Just, uh, okay. just throw that out there. I agree. So I, I started exploring Buddhism when I was 16, mm-hmm. long before I went to rabbinical school. Uh, my parents were, well, let's put it this way. My father was not happy. My mother thought I, you know, I could do no wrong. So she didn't, she didn't feel, you know, oh, it's my son. He's brilliant. But my <laughs> father was very unhappy and didn't understand that. When I went to rabbinical school, he, he wasn't any happier because I chose to go to a reform seminary rather than orthodox seminary. When I told him I was going to reform, he just, I, I can see it and hear it in my mind. We were in the kitchen. I said, I'm going to Hebrew Union College. That's the reform seminary. And he just blurted out angrily, reform? That's a church. <laughs> so honestly, I had no rebuttal. I'd never been to a reform synagogue. I knew absolutely zero about reform Judaism. But I met this historian who taught uh, in the reform movement, uh, Ellis Rifkin, now deceased. And I loved this guy. And I loved his understanding of history and Judaism, Jewish history in particular. And it was sort of, whither thou goest, I will go kind mm-hmm. of thing. And that's where he was, so that's where I went. But my dad was not happy. Well, I hope uh, he came around in time to well, see your... <laughs> he, he died. <laughs> but eventually, did. but before he did, did he oh. come? Oh, yeah, I thought you meant he came around like, he's, like the Dalai Lama keeps coming around. No, no, I meant did he come around <laughs> to accept your choices? And... Um, he made his piece of it. Good. He made a piece with it. We, we, I think what he liked was he came to the synagogue a couple of times and you know, they lived in Massachusetts and I lived in Florida, but they visited a couple of times and he saw that people were engaged in Judaism, even if it wasn't his Judaism. Mm. And then he and I went to Israel once with my congregation. And uh, again, he saw how these people who were not observant in any way, were just engaging with Jewish history, engaging with thought and philosophy and, and somewhat with practice. But they were, their minds were, their hearts were in the right place, even if their behavior was different than his. And I think he, I think he was impressed with that, that, right. that he realized, oh, wait, there's, there's other ways to do this than the way I was raised. Right. Let, me ask well, one you other, let, let me ask Go one ahead, other question Dave. along those lines, Phil. And that is, uh, I read that you uh, uh, studied in uh, in Israel with uh, uh, amongst the Lubavitch, uh, the Hasidic uh, group there. And uh, how did they take to you? And uh, how did you take to them? 
Well, they, I, I, I approached them. I mean, I was, I thought Lubavitch was, in a sense, philosophically, the answer. And I liked the romance. You know, I had a romanticized view of what um, being a Hasid in the Lubavitch camp was like. And I would, I, I was just really drawn to it. I, this was when I was, you know, sophomore in college. And I was disabused of my romanticism when I went to Kfar Chabad, which is the Chabad village in Israel. And it was over a holiday and you weren't supposed to flush the toilets. And I said, oh no, this is not for me. <laughs> I need I need a Judaism without, you know, that that perfume. I could do without that. So, but, but I tell you, it, it, Chabad in particular, I mean, I've translated, you know, when I say translated, I've created my own version uh, by going through the text of, of uh, the Chabad's official anthology, if you, I don't know if they call it that, of Hasidic tales. I've translated those in my own way. I took the Tanya, which is the foundation document of Chabad, by the founding rabbi of Chabad, Shnur Zalman of Liadi. I, I translated that, or portions of that. Um, they, they've had a huge influence on me philosophically. I'll tell you a story. Once I was, every year in Miami, I would take my congregation just before the, the, the tourist season started. We would go to a very kosher Orthodox hotel on the beach just so they could experience what growing up in Orthodoxy is or what living an Orthodox life is like for a you know, day and a half over Shabbat. And one night, it was Saturday night, Sabbath was over, and I was giving a talk at the hotel and about six Chabad kids came in, older teenage boys. And I thought, uh-oh, there, we're going to have a problem. But they were very polite. They sat in the back. They sat through the entire uh, seminar or lecture, whatever I was doing, and never said a word. And then when it was over and people left, they waited, and they came and talked to me privately. And, and what they said was astounding. This one kid says, speaking for the rest of them, you know, we sat here the whole time. We listened to everything you had to say. And you say exactly what we say. Why aren't you a Chabad, you know, person? Mm-hmm. And I said, no, I get it totally because I've stolen most of what I say from you. But I cannot, I cannot live the lifestyle. Mm. And then they looked at each other and they looked at me and they said, yeah, we get it. And they <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's great. Uh, we should make clear to the listeners that um, you haven't been a congregational rabbi for many years, if not decades. 18, 18 years I've been out of a congregation. How many? 18. 18. And uh, so you've been freelancing and writing and very active in uh, interspiritual uh, in- engagement, uh, drawing from a lot of uh, different traditions. Um, how did that exploration outside of Judaism influence how you approached Ecclesiastes? Ecclesiastes. Ah, so that's very direct answer to that. Everything I know about Ecclesiastes, I discovered through a course in Taoism. Huh. Uh, what What was happening was I was um, getting a, a degree in religious studies, concentration in Buddhism at Smith College. Long story, it's, a, it's Smith College for women, but I got special dispensation along with seven other men 
to actually go full-time to Smith College in the religion department. And you couldn't live on, on campus. You couldn't eat on campus. It was almost impossible to pee on campus. Because <laughs> there were just ladies, you know, women's rooms and faculty bathrooms, and, and they didn't have it, you know, just for, for, the, for the, the average person with a penis, there was really no place to pee. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Um, I had a roommate who was studying, I was studying Buddhism. He was studying uh, Western religion, and he took a class in uh, Ecclesiastes, and he came back the first day all excited, and he said, do you know the opening line of Ecclesiastes is, is like a Taoist text? It's talking about emptiness and impermanence. Mm-hmm. I'd never heard that before. And because, you know, even though I knew the Hebrew, I guess, I guess, I guess you could say I translated it into English in my head the way everyone else translates it into English in your head. So, you know, the opening line is it's in, in Hebrew, it's Hevel um, Havalim, which, which normally, I guess people translate as vanity upon vanity or and, uh, you know, va- uh, meaninglessness upon meaninglessness. I mean, it's got all these depressing translations. Everything is Hakol Hebel. Everything is meaningless. I mean, that, who wants to read that book? But this guy said, th- th- my friend said, uh, look at it again and look it up and see where the word comes from. Because his teacher said, it, it really is about impermanence. So I did. And you look up the word uh, Hevel and it's, it's uh, related to morning dew. Mm. And it's like something that arises in the morning. It's gone by 10 o'clock. And I said, oh, my God, I never thought about it. I just had in my head what, what someone put in my head. So in my own translation, you know, I, I try to take away all of that negativity and put it in, you know, what I think is it's more accurate Taoist context. So I, and I, I make it a verb. I don't like, you know, it, I mean, you could say I don't, but you could say emptiness emptiness upon emptiness. I don't like that because it sounds fixed, like Mm. emptiness is a thing. So in my work, I say emptying, emptying upon emptying. Mm. Uh, Because that's what I, I I think that's more accurate in English, that it's a process that's continually forming and emptying and forming and emptying, sort of heart sutra kind of thing. Form is emptiness, emptiness is form. But again, if I were translating the heart sutra into English, I would say, Forming is emptying, and emptying is forming. But um, it, it seeing it through that Taoist lens changes the entire book. Mm. Now it's not a book about how do I live in a world that's absolutely meaningless. Now it's how do I live in a world that's absolutely fluid and impermanent. And then that changes everything. Now that, can I follow up, Dennis? Go ahead. Um, I'm not by any means uh, familiar with biblical uh, translations or anything, but often... Well, you should be, Phil. <laughs> I tell him that all I the time. Not, I did not <laughs> grow up in an Orthodox... I grew up with Orthodox Marxists, if anything. Um, but the um, Ecclesiastes has always been a sort of... It sounds like it's a nihilistic book or a depressing book. And I always think 
when I read yours and I thought, oh, it's like some of the interpretations of Buddha's Four Noble Truths where they take dukkha as suffering and they turn it into something depressing, like all life is suffering, right. forgetting about the rest of the Four Noble Truths. Yeah, right. That's what's happened to the book, that people have been trained to hear it as a nihilistic, depressing diatribe about, about life, when in fact, he's just sharing reality. Look, nothing is permanent. Now what are you going to do? I mean, there are some things in the book that are um, that reflect the politics of the author's time. So for example, uh, he tells you uh, never, never share, I'm paraphrasing either my own work, so I have to look it up exactly, but don't tell your, don't share your politics even with your lover in bed mm. because a little bird will hear you and take it to the authorities. Oh, and so, the, so what they, you know, what, what they're talking about is there were spies everywhere. They lived in a practice society. The king was always listening in on, uh, you know, trying to find out who's fomenting against uh, the, the, the royalty. And so you got to be very careful. So there are things like, who do you trust? Maybe not, that's not. why the symbol of Twitter is a bird. <laughs> yes. Maybe. There you go. <laughs> great, great there insights. <laughs> So, so there's a lot of, uh, well, not a lot, but there's, there's material like that that is just of interest, not philosophically so much, but, but in other ways. But, it's, but again, then you can hear that and you go, wait, now you can't trust anybody. And yet in another passage, he says, having two or three good friends is absolutely essential to survival. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think the book is incredibly practical as a an individual's manual for living. It's not interested in society. You could extrapolate from what he says is the good life for the individual. You could extrapolate that and make it into a social program, meaning he says, you know, you should eat simply and drink moderately. You could switch that to say you should have a society in which everyone has decent food and, and you know, healthy food and clean water. Uh, so you could take his things from the individualist perspective and turn it into a, uh, a social program. Mm -hmm. But the book is really for the individual. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Rabbi, I'm curious. Uh, Ecclesiastes, uh, uh, in traditional Jewish texts, King Solomon is the uh, named the author. Mo modern scholars uh, right. often reject this. Uh, where do you think this came from? Did it was there one author, many authors? Has it changed over the centuries? Uh, is it ever evolving? Uh, uh, how, how would you respond to that? I mean, it's a tough question. I don't know if there's any answer, but wh wh where well, does it come from? I mean, the, we, we can be pretty certain that it's not Solomon. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that the language is later Hebrew, so it's, it's definitely not Solomon. People, it's the, the practice is called pseudopigrapha. That's when you look for famous people and you use their names when you write a book rather than your own. Because, Why didn't I think of that? <laughs> oh, I... I thought you did. Your name, <laughs> your name is really Phil Goldberg. I didn't know that. Wait, wait till Phil's book comes out. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> yeah, but that's what they used to do. I mean, that's how you get Paul's letters in the New Testament. Only a few of them are actually Paul's, and the rest people just use his name. So, and it's, it's a, it wasn't like lying. It was, well, I mean, in Buddhism, 
the Buddha didn't write all those or speak all those sutras. People felt they were in the Buddhist mindset so they could ascribe mm. what they were saying or teaching or writing to the Buddha. So, so, so that's pseudepigrapha. It's a legitimate, or it was anyway, a legitimate uh, act in, in, in its time. So they chose Solomon because they thought it would, it would sell better, you know, if Solomon wrote it. How the, the, the title in Greek, Ecclesiastes, and in Hebrew, Kohelet, it means more like the anthologist or the oh, collector of wisdom. And the book has got different parts. It's, part of it is just Proverbs that whoever put the book together may have collected. Uh, or and, and who knows, people may have added to it over time. I, I tend to think the book was put together once as an anthology of, of wisdom that was floating around in, in proverb form. And then um, the person who did that was also, I think, a poet and a philosopher who added new material to that. So you, you can see different styles of, of writing. But I, I, I'm, my guess is it's the same guy. Not that it really matters, but mm -hmm. it's, it's one person. Uh, does it change over time? Well, I think it changes in the sense I mean, the text itself is fixed. You've got it. You can't add a new paragraph to the text, though the end of the book uh, is, is completely fake. In other words, after whoever wrote the original put it all together, somebody got a hold of it and freaked out and said, whoa, this, where's God? Where's uh, the commandments? Where's you know all the things that were normative, uh, Jewishly normative. So in in your in in the Hebrew, someone tapped on, and again I'm paraphrasing. When all is said and done, fear God and observe His commandments. You know, and that's how the that's how the official version ended. But that somebody wrote that in because God doesn't appear in, in the book that way, and there are no there's no talk of commandments or. Um, you know, any of the Jewish dietary laws or Shabbat or any of those things. It's a philosophy book. It's not a book um, specifically for Jews or reflective of Jewish uh, cultural norms. Most likely, and this is the last thing I'll say about it unless you ask more questions, but where does it come from? There is a strand of literature that's universal. There's, there's, there's Egyptian versions and Greek things, and, and it's called wisdom literature. And Ecclesiastes is an expression of Hebrew wisdom literature. And what wisdom literature, regardless of where it comes from, has in common is that it isn't tied to a specific culture. I mean, certainly, if you're reading Egyptian wisdom literature, you're going to find, because it's Egyptian, you'll find Egyptian cultural things in there. But it's not about how to be a better Egyptian or how to be a better Jew or how to be a better Greek. It's about how to be a better person. And um, that literature is, I, I, that to me is the most important literature from the period. And we're talking second century around that. So in the, in the uh, Hebrew Bible, wisdom literature is the book of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job. There's a couple of Psalms that are considered part of wisdom literature. Some people argue that Song of Solomon is a part of the wisdom literature. And then you've got what's called the Apocrypha, which is different than the Pseudopigrapha. Pseudopigrapha is fake people just using the name of famous people as the author. 
the Apocrypha is books that fell between the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament chronologically. You know, people wrote them in an in-between period. And there are two books in there, The Wisdom of Solomon and uh, Ben Sirach, The Wisdom of Sirach. And, and those two are also part of the Hebrew uh, wisdom literature, though we don't have the Hebrew originals. We only have Greek translations. Interesting. Rami, uh, you call yeah. your Tao of Solomon uh, a reimagining rather than a translation. What did you mean by that? And um, how many liberties did you take? <laughs> uh, well, you know, I have, this one is a reimagining. And, and I, so I have another version of it, which is a little more rigorous in the translation. But I went with... Um, once I understood the, the root thing is about Hevel as due, as impermanence, as emptying, once I read it that way, then I allowed my imagination to sort of engage with Solomon and say, look, if, if you were writing this today, how would we, how could I be true to the text, but more importantly, true to the philosophy that underlies the text? So, yeah, there's liberties there. There's, I, I don't have a way of saying how many. But I, 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 what I do is I read the original. I read a lot of commentaries on what people said about it. But I keep going. I use a lot of dictionaries to go back and try to say, what's the root here? What, where does this word come from? And um, then I see what comes to me. So, yeah, it's... I mean, if you really want to be jaded about it, it's as much Solomon's book as it is my book. <laughs> so, you know, I may be called to account, you know, when I die and I go to literary heaven, then uh, mm -hmm. Solomon is there going, hey, hey, you ripped me off. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I, uh, Rabbi, I have one last question from my side, and that is uh, the Tao of Solomon. Why uh, do you recommend uh, a person read it? It has to do with why you wrote it. What message does it give for contemporary uh, people? Yeah, that to me, the, the reason, well, I wrote it for the reason I want you to read it. I wrote it because it spoke to me about how best to live in a world that is fundamentally fluid or to be less, um, to be a little bit more blunt, that, that's fundamentally chaotic. That's how I think the world works. That's why. I, I wrote it for, just for myself because I, I love the, what this guy has to say, Ecclesiastes. And then that's why I want people to read it. I want them to read it and say, oh my goodness, this is not news. This, is, this understanding of reality has been around for centuries and centuries, millennia, and I can learn from what these ancient teachers had to say. I mean, I, I get, I mean, I, people are be reading the Stoics and, you know, the Taoists and these ancient wisdom schools, uh, not simply for history, but to figure out what's going on now. How do I live, you know, uh, intelligently and lovingly in a world that's essentially mad? Mm -hmm. And speaking of that, um, in reimagining Ecclesiastes as a uh, a book about impermanence and not despair and nihilism, um, you 
declare that it's it's a book of liberation and this too reminded me of of buddhism and taoism where you begin with impermanence and everything's changing but they lead you to a transcendence of that reality and something uh where unity is um the ultimate conclusion you take yeah. the reader in that kind of direction too from what i can gather right that's the direction i go i mean i would nitpick a couple of things i mean one i don't think i think my understanding of ecclesiastes being you know about living in, in a fluid reality is way more on target with what he said than people who say it's a nihilistic book I think if there's any interpretation going on, it's more on their side. They're imagining they're imagining the book in a very negative way that I don't think he did. But then this notion of transcendence. So that's where your your Hinduism is coming through. Mm-hmm. Your Hinduism your Hinduism is showing, Phil. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if there's. I mean, reality is reality, and I think reality is fundamentally chaos. And it, meaning it's, it's creative and it's always killing itself off and, re, and, and then rebirthing. And there is no steady state reality. There's no way to escape from that. that. But that, having said that, that doesn't mean there's not unity. I think the entire thing is the expression of a singular process. So, so I, I see myself as a non-dualist. But I don't know if you can transcend it. Hmm. I think you can simply be surrendered to it and find peace, calm, tranquility in the midst of it. So it's like, you know, it's like you're in, you're caught in a, no, you're in the, in the, in the, in the water, in the lake or in a pool or something. And if you struggle against the water, you're going to drown. But if you can relax into the water, the water will, will fool you and, and, and hold you up and you won't die. Or, you know, you're caught in a riptide, you fight against the riptide, well, you're gonna, you're, you're screwed. But if you can work with the riptide, mm-hmm. you can eventually swim your way out of it. So, and is that what know. you see the uh, content of Ecclesiastic, uh, Ecclesiastes leading to? That kind of yeah, right. Way? I think it leads, it leads to a. Uh, I'm trying to take the active verb out of it, but it leads to a state of being surrendered. Mm. That is, in fact, a state of grace love, compassion, uh, not, not a state of, of punishment, but a state of, of compassion. So, yeah, that's where I think it leads you to. Great. Now, the, the problem with the book in sense, with Ecclesiastes itself, is that it's a, it's a philosophy book. So you need practices to go to make that happen. It's not, I don't think it's enough just to have the idea, you know, jhana yoga aside. I think, I think that, that there are certain you have to live a certain way to make this a reality. So he says, like I, I mentioned earlier, you have to, you know, simplify your diet. You have to um, find a job. He says that brings you joy. That's mm-hmm. that's a challenge. I mean, most people mm-hmm. are working just because they got to get by. What would what would it be like if we had a society where the criteria for work was well, this brings me joy. I mean, it may actually happen if you follow, you know, people like Yuval Harari, the Israeli historian, who says that we're moving into a point where the algorithms are running everything. And many of us are going to belong to what he calls the useless class. 
he means <laughs> there's no work, there's no there's nothing we can do to earn a living because everything we can do the computers are already doing. But if you he doesn't intend it this way. But if you did a Taoist twist on the useless class, that's like the uncarved block. That's like the I'm useless, which like like the useless tree that no one chops down because we can't make something out of it. So you have a sense of of immortality and 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 uh, I don't mean that literally, of course, but you, you know you have a sense of value just because you're useless. And then so then you end up with where they call it uh, minimum the income, the minimum income thing where, mm. look, we can't, these companies are making gazillions of dollars off the robots. Um, they need to pay gazillions of dollars in taxes so the rest of us, you know, can become, uh, can survive in, in the useless class, but useless in the sense that... And write books. And write books, books, yeah. Write books, paint paintings, right, right, write music, right. you know, garden, you right. know, befriend one another. There's lots of things you can do when you're at last useless. Mm -hmm. and I, I love the word useless, just not the way I think Harari meant it. Mm -hmm. uh, Rabbi, thank you so very much for your time and thank you for coming back on the show. Any, any final words you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, you know, uh, is this going to be broadcast soon? Uh, yeah, within weeks. When we, so it's still going to be Christmas, Christmas time, I guess. Or post-Christmas. So, yeah, yeah, close post, to. Post -Christmas. So, so my, my blessing to everyone out there is that, uh, you know, may your Christmas, recent past or in the future, whenever it comes out, but may this Christmas be one in which you are graced with the birthing of the Christ within, the consciousness that knows that everything is a process, everything is a happening of the one thing. And with that comes the capacity for absolute surrender to, to be absolutely surrendered and to be absolutely compassionate at the same time not many rabbis would close with that <laughs> Rami. um and in the in the spirit of um the one line from ecclesiastes if it is from ecclesiastes that everybody knows is that um for everything there is a season and so forth right. um very Taoist. Right? You don't yeah, it is. Yeah. And, but we should say that we're recording this uh, a couple of weeks before Christmas of, nine, of 2018. It'll be archived, and people might listen to this at any time. And for every season, there will be yeah. a message from Rabbi Rami on our uh, <laughs> podcast. Perfect. Well put, well put. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rami. Thank you. Uh, thank you, guys, very much.